of the hymnal, page 790, because I want you to share in the reading of our Scripture lesson today from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 on page 790. You're looking at several different psalms here for a few more weeks. I'll pick up our studies in Matthew again in mid-August, but I want to spend a couple more weeks, just a summer um, break here, I guess you'll call it, as we look to the Old Testament and to some certain psalms. I told folks in the early service, I remember when I first took a course in the psalms, I was still in college, and took a Bible course on the psalms, and, and I realized how the psalms to me had been kind of like a forest. You look at them and, and, you know, you look at a forest and you see, well, all the trees are sort of alike, viewed from a distance. And the Psalms can be that way. You know, you think, well, they all sort of say almost the same thing. Well, then you begin to study them. And just as you would see the difference between a birch tree and an oak tree and a spruce tree, individual Psalms take on a life of, of precious truth by themselves. Psalm 19 is one of those great Psalms. I've never preached on it before, actually. It's actually pretty amazing when you think about it. But uh, we're going to consider this today, and I want you to read the bold print as we read this together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Read the last together with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the Word of God. Well, I don't know how many of you it affected personally, but yesterday was a landmark day in the publishing industry in the Western world. My wife and I happened to be in Barnes & Noble bookstore on Friday afternoon, not for this purpose. 
I assure you, we were not. But we were amazed at the folks who were lined up to get passes to an event at that bookstore at midnight that night. Many of you know what I'm referring to. The release of J.K. Rowling's seventh and final in the series of the Harry Potter novels about a fantasy world and a young boy facing all kinds of difficulties in good and evil. The bookstores have those all stacked up for you, folks. Uh, we saw the white boxes there with printed on the boxes, do not open until July 21st. What an amazing publishing story. J.K. Rowling's once a homeless mother, didn't know where to turn or what to do, didn't have a decent job. Now, today, having sold almost 350 million of her books, I'm told that her fortune among British women is exceeded only by the Queen of England, and she may pass her. Amazing. There is, of course, a best-selling book, which now has been published in nearly every language of the earth and sold in numbers not in the millions or hundreds of millions, but billions The Holy Bible certainly remains the best-selling publication in the history of our planet, and its record of sales is likely never to be rivaled. But I would have you see today that our psalm, Psalm 19, is speaking of not just one but actually two publications sent from God, given to reveal Himself. First, the book of creation, and then the written book of the Holy Scripture. You see, in Psalm 19 before us here, we have a marvelous and unique story from David. Its opening lines are well known. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the skies His handiwork. Those lines are familiar to many people. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor of literature, said that Psalm 19 is possibly the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics of the whole world. Numerous hymns are based on this psalm. I found no less than seven in our hymnal that either are written directly from it or allude to it. You heard on the wonderful flute music an echo of Franz Joseph Haydn's theme from the oratorio, the creation, which uses words and is based on the 19th Psalm. Now, aside from a much longer Psalm, 119, which you may know is a Psalm that talks exclusively about the written law of God, here in Psalm 19 is just about the fullest exposition the Old Testament contains about God's revelation in general. Not only his specific revelation of his word, but his general revelation, as we call it, of his creation. The theme here that David takes up is how and to what end does God make himself known? And he tells us that there is, as it were, a wordless billboard made of stars and planets and galaxies spangling the night sky that testify, not in sentences or paragraphs, but eloquently testify to the grandeur and the power of God the Creator. 
And then he tells us, too, about the written book of God's law in Holy Scripture, extending that natural revelation to a more specific end to tell us about God as Redeemer and as Savior. These two volumes, if you will, these two bestsellers from God speak with one voice, even though they speak distinctly. And so I ask you to join me today in in better understanding this two-volume publication work of God here in his word. And I want you to see how, before we close, David drew it to a very personal application. First of all, we look at Psalm 19, 1 through 6, and we find this theme. God's book of creation is a wordless and yet eloquent testimony to his eternal glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. That word glory is one we utilize, we fall back on whenever we want to describe that which is is resplendent and great and beautiful and majestic, just going beyond the powers of descriptive language. Glory is something normally that belongs to God and God alone. And David chooses to point to the example of the skies. Now, if you think about David and what you know about him, he was once a shepherd boy, spent many months and and years of his young life out in the fields tending sheep. You can easily picture him laying on some bank in in the midnight sky above him, trying to go to sleep and studying everything there was to see without the smog of a city to obscure his sight of the dazzling sky. David must have known the constellations well. He probably could follow direction or find his way by the North Star and and navigate by the stars. And he could have sat down and said, look, you know, there's Gemini, there's Orion, that's Venus over there. And so he chose this that he was familiar with to say, here is an illustration. He could have chosen other things. He could have said, what about the mountains or what about the oceans abounding with creatures, but he chose the stars, the heavens, to illustrate a creator, the same creator who made one-celled paramecia, the same creator who made whales and orchids and the human eye and hummingbirds. He said, the heavens tell of the glory of God, the engineer, the designer, the artist who planned all this and put it in place. Once when he was preaching in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, we hear Paul say, God has not left himself without a witness. And he meant the creation. He meant the fingerprints, the the handiwork of God in the natural world. And whether we're talking about the cosmology of modern astrophysics, I read not long ago a new popular biography of... uh, Albert Einstein, that's out. Some of you have probably seen it. It's a big blockbuster of a book. Einstein, so interesting. He wasn't a religious man. Though born a Jew, he shunned almost all religious ritual, and yet he would talk about God because he knew that this creation that he understood so well through mathematics and physics did not just spring into being by itself. Whether you're talking about that kind of discussion or those who study the geology of the earth or those who are in the microbiology lab probing disease-causing viruses, there are people out there all over the place studying the wonderful creation of God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word bara 
is one of the great verbs of the Bible. He created. It means brought into being. Not assembled. You know, assemble would be a different word. You assemble. This building was assembled. We saw the steel girders arrive. We saw the bricks arrive, the concrete blocks. And it was assembled from things that existed. God created, not assembled. Because to create means to bring out of nothing that existed before. He spoke, the Scripture says, and worlds came into being. Atoms took their bonds to one another. Black holes in space were there, and blazing suns began to govern planets that spun in orbits around them. What wonders he's done. Romans 1.17 says, We believe on the basis of faith that God, quote, calls into existence things that did not previously exist. Now, there are people who think that's folly. How can you believe a thing like that? Well, if that is folly, then, Mr. Scientist, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Tell me your better, more believable version of universal origins. We have today many who take refuge in the the supposed alternative of macroevolution, the idea that, that things just kind of happened in a certain form and then they happened some more and, and they happened in more combinations until we happened. Well, there's too much happening there. there too much faith required for that happening and no fossils to tell us how it happened. It lacks the critical evidence needed for acceptance. The Scripture says... By faith we believe that God made the world as it is out of nothing, by his power, by his command. Modern science sometimes gets so wrapped up in the study of the works of the natural creation, whether they be animal or or natural phenomenon, that they make those objects of nature into objects of worship. They say, look at this. Here's the pure materialist. He says, look at this butterfly wing. Just look at this. I'm going to put a magnifying glass and a microscope. Why, it's absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful. Look at how it's designed. This must be God. And we have people who make of the animals of the world themselves as invest a divinity in them or invest a divinity in the mountains or the oceans or the stars and say, well, you know, yeah, somebody made it all. I'm not going to worry about who that was, but just look at it. Let's just worship what he made. This is pantheism, we call it. God in the objects of nature itself. That's not what Psalm 19 is teaching. It does not say the stars are divine or mountains are divine or porpoises or whales or anything else. It says these things are telling the glory of a transcendent creator who made them. They testify to him. John Calvin once said, as soon as we acknowledge God to be supreme architect who created the beauteous fabric of the universe, our minds must necessarily, he said, be ravished with wonder at his infinite goodness and wisdom and power. In these first six verses of Psalm 19, we have a declaration of what we call the general revelation of God. That's the theologian's term here, general as opposed to specific, which is in the second half of the psalm. And this general revelation of God in nature sends out a message that the psalm says goes out continuously. Day after day, 
Night after night, the testimony's being told. You see, this isn't a national park that you go to and find out, oh, it's sorry, it's closed on Monday. This exhibit is always open. God's exhibit is always displaying this, time after time, season after season, day and night. The variety, the beauty, the power of our God is mirrored in what he's made. There's never a moment that it cannot be seen. Now, you might suppose that those who study these things, people of science, would examine these things, and the deeper they study, the more active and wondering their worship would become. And there are indeed many Christian scientists. I certainly acknowledge that. People who study the things of nature, and and they do indeed proclaim the Creator. But you would think all scientists, the the more acquainted they got, would go around singing in their laboratories every day. You know, how great thou art would be the morning theme song, wouldn't it be? I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. How great you are! You know, let's get all the scientists together and sing it at lunchtime. I don't think they do that. I don't think they do. Because the nature of human unbelief is that it's not logical. It doesn't respond with praise to God for the things that it sees. In fact, so perverse and deeply rooted is the fall of man in people that many scientists, the more and more they learn, the more specialized they become, the more knowledgeable they become, whether it's in chemistry or botany or whatever field, they're able to see. They can see the veins in the leaf of the tree, but they can't see the forest. They don't even understand that there is a forest. They say, let me discuss the, the cells that make up this vein and this capillary action and this leaf. And they don't know there's a forest. And they certainly don't know there's someone who made the forest. They turn a blind eye to ultimate causes. And sadly, sadly, many of our best scientists, not all, rest in God-denying agnosticism. Such is the nature of unbelief. But the creation, we're told here, not only has a continuous revelation, it's an abundant revelation. It pours out, says verse 2. The Hebrew word there is a picture of a gushing spring, an irrepressible spring. You couldn't stop it if you tried. It would squirt out somewhere else. God's witness to himself is right out in the open. It's self-evident. It's not hidden. I didn't happen to see the sunset last night, but somebody told me after the service that it was a great one. We often see them from our deck. God who paints that sky with orange and purple. God who, if your journeys of summer take you as John Light is is out in the deserts of the west where he loves to go. I don't understand. I go to New England where it's green. John goes to the desert. Uh, Just a difference in us. But go out there and see the strange rock formations and the You know, the beauties that are out there in the desert, the animal behavior, the splendors of stars swirling in space. There's so many things. They declare their maker. Their voices cannot be silenced. They're not speaking the Hebrew language or the English language, but they're speaking eloquently, wonderfully, of this great God who made them. And then notice how David singles out the sun here in verses 4 to 6 as just an example. It's, it's like an illustration that he chooses to tell from uh, 4b through uh, verse 6 as an illustration of the heavens. The sun. Now, of course, I know David lived in a pre-modern day. 
He, if you asked him, does the sun go around the earth or the earth go around the sun, he would say the sun goes around the earth. Well, we know better. Copernicus taught us it's the other way around. But that doesn't destroy his illustration at all. When he takes the sun here and says, here's the dominating heavenly body that determines day from night. We watch it. It's a grand thing. He admires it, how the sun comes proudly forth. He compares it. You see, he uses an anthropomorphism here, comparing it to a man and says, the sun is like a bridegroom wearing his best suit going forth for the greatest day of his life, all resplendent as he marches down the village street to greet his bride. Or he's like a warrior, like a champion, going to battle with his arms and his shoulders back, proudly ready to go to victory. That's how he saw this heavenly body that God had made. You know, I watched a program on the sun, caught this just a couple months ago on one of the nature programs on TV, I learned some things I hadn't known before. I certainly knew that the sun was a thermonuclear furnace with nuclear reactions going on and its core being just an unimaginable, I mean, hot isn't even the word. You don't even begin to use the word hot for how many thousands of degrees are there at the core of the sun. But I, I learned about how this radioactivity going on is so much greater than if we were to take every nuclear weapon in possession of every country on the earth right now and set them off in one bang, it would be like a little child's firecracker alongside the sun. And that's going on all the time. You know, they say the sun is actually a dying star. Don't get too upset. It's going to die a long time after you're gone. A long time after you're gone. One of the things I learned was here, you know, here's this nuclear reactor on a massive scale with flames and, and radioactive power going out from it. And this fact shook me up a little bit. Did you know it was only eight minutes from the time that the, I can't describe the right terminology, but from the time that the, the, the waves of the sun leave the sun's surface, it's exactly eight minutes until it gets to your neck mowing the front lawn. When I thought about that, I thought, I think I'm going to stay in from now on. But isn't it, isn't it marvelous to think, you know, if our planet was positioned 2,000 miles closer to the sun, we'd be burned to a crisp. If it was 2,000 miles farther away, the polar ice cap would be in Phoenix. God has made these things. And even the sun in its power, you think about it, here it is, astonishing power that it could destroy us, but it doesn't destroy us. It blesses us, doesn't it? And isn't that like God himself? Uh, there's a place where the Scripture says our God is a raging fire, reminding you that, that he is a, a power of great wrath who could destroy. But what's his choice? His choice is to use his power to bless most of the time. So here we have this creation, a wordless and yet eloquent testimony to God's eternal glory. Well, now let's shift gears because that's what David does. He shifts and he doesn't even warn us the shift is coming in verse 7. There are critics who look at this psalm and they say, this must be two literary works jammed together. We don't think they belong together. That one through six was a work and seven No, we think David indeed wants this together and wrote it this way. 
he shifts gears at verse 7 to start to talk about the other book of God's revelation. Without warning, he's talking about the written book, and he starts praising it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, and so on. David now is writing about what the theologian calls special revelation, a very specific revelation about himself and how he goes about saving people. And so our second point today is this. God's written book of Scripture brings life to dead souls who receive its witness. On our vacation two weeks ago, my wife and I visited a beloved relative on her side of the family, someone we, we see rather infrequently. It's been, I don't even know, six or seven years, I think, since we last saw this man. He lives far from us. He's someone we love. I'm going to call him John. That's not his real name. Uncle John is, is I think, even though we have a good relationship, always a little uncomfortable about the fact that his niece married a minister. So that when we have social interaction, he has to interact with a minister, which he doesn't usually have to do. And I found that he does this rather regularly whenever we're together. And it's not an unknown phenomenon. Pastors see this. Sitting down to lunch, I didn't raise the subject, he did. He suddenly started to say, well, you know, I I think you both know I don't go to a church and I don't worship regularly at a church of any denomination, but I have my faith in the man upstairs, and that faith is very important to me, and I worship best when I go to the seashore and the woods and see the things he's made. Now, I respect Uncle John. I love him, but I'm sad for him. Because John can agree with verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19 and and say the things it says. Look at the great things God has done in the natural world. But then, in his religion of his making, he goes no farther than verses 1 through 6. He's satisfied with a vague designer of the beautiful creation. He reads God's first volume, but he doesn't read the second. He knows about God, that there is a God, but he doesn't know God as Father and Savior. He doesn't know his love and his goodness and his mercy and his justice. Because you see, if you only read the first volume of the first half of this psalm, you become accountable to God. Romans 1 says that. Romans 1.20 says his fingerprints are all over his creation, and there isn't any human being ever since that creation who can go away and say, I'm sorry, God didn't give me any evidence of himself. No, Paul said in the Romans, you are without excuse. God has given you evidence. You should be seeking him. And the implication is that if he's given you his written word, you should be seeking that. I'm sad for Uncle John's cliched man upstairs. It's not the man upstairs who will do anything for us. That's a very poor title for the Lord God of hosts, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, the great I Am, Jesus, the morning star, The rose of Sharon, 
not the man upstairs. You see, Psalm 19, 7 through 11, begins to speak about the sheer excellence of the Bible as God's written word. And we could spend a lot of time on this that we don't have, and so I'm going to keep it to a few minutes. And even though school's out, I'm going to ask the kids to have a lesson here in terms they'll understand. I want them first to see the nouns that are used here about Scripture. Look at the different nouns. Scripture, God's written revelation, is all these things. Law, statute, precept, command, fear, ordinance. All these things describe the Word of God. Not just one part of the Bible, the whole Bible. And then he gets into adjectives. This is just like school, isn't it? Perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure. The description of this word of God is many-faceted word. He describes it as having sterling perfection. We are justified when we call it infallible and when we say in its original autographs or manuscripts offered in the Hebrew and Greek as it was authored that God spoke without error. His word is perfect. And then look at the verbs that are here. They're great, too. Look what it does. It revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It makes the heart rejoice. It gives light to the eye. It endures forever. It warns God's servant. It gives a great reward. Now, we could make each of those things a point and go into them. They're all worthy of more study. But I want you to see the collective nature of this great word of God. Maybe the first of those verbs is the most important one. It revives the dead. This word, remember, God spoke creation. He said, let it be, and it was. The word of God that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us and rising for us accomplishes the death of our sins and our resurrection to a new life. It's a new birth, the Scripture says. A supernatural birth that the word of God brings to pass. Just to keep it short this morning, I would point you to what Hebrews 1, verse 1 says in talking about the Bible and its revelation. And there it says that everything the prophets were writing down from ancient times was all leading up to one thing, to one crowning revelation of God's Scripture, and that was Jesus Christ. He's the last word. He's the best word. He's the consummating word. He's not the man upstairs. He's the one before whom you ought to bow. Keeping in mind the great creation, keeping in mind the Scripture, and looking to him and saying, here I find expressed everything God had to say. When I see him, I see the Father, and so I call him my Lord and my God, and my dead soul comes to life in Christ. Now, today, we could say much more about the Scripture, but I pass to the last and quick point here. Verses 12 to 14, there's another transition. David starts to do something else without announcing in advance that he's doing it. He starts to pray, and he gives us his prayer. Who can discern his own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults, O God. Keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me. And when you do this, I'll be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. David is saying that God's total revelation actually illumines all the dark places in my own heart, and what results is righteousness. 
You see, the psalm ends in an intensely practical, personal way. He started out talking about nature. Then he talked about Scripture. Now it's me. Lord, your word. When I consider what you've revealed, your word goes into me. It starts to probe me. It starts to shed light on things I didn't even know were in there. This is the purpose of God's Word, not just that we would admire the stars, not just that we would listen to the Scripture and become intellectually wise, but that God's revelation of Himself would get inside us and start to change us. I think David is likening the Word of God here to something like a flashlight or a torch carried into a deep cave where it shines to show us things We didn't know we're there. That's what he's praying there. How can I discern my own errors? Lord, my faults are hidden. Show me what they are. It's as if David is saying, why, I'm like a landlord who rents rooms inside my own heart and my own mind, and and I've rented it to some people who I thought were clean-cut college boys, and it turns out it's an Al-Qaeda cell planning terror. And it's inside me, Lord. And your word shows me that. Lord, keep showing me what's going on inside me because it's horrifying to see what's there in the dark cellars of my own heart. But your word lightens it, and the bats start flying out when your word comes. And I'm clean by the work that you've done that your word reveals when it shows me the cross and the resurrection of Jesus who died to give me new life and make me clean. How dare you read only half of the publications that God has written for you? How dare you stand looking at nature and saying, oh, it's great. How great thou art. Great God of wonders. Good. Sing all those hymns. But don't forget the second book, because the second book brings God's work to completion. The work of redemption that shows us our sin and shows us a way of escape in Christ and atonement done in our place. That all the dark stuff down inside us is illumined. And God letting us see it maybe frightens us for a moment, but then assures us that he died to cleanse all that and to take it away. The God who made the Milky Way galaxy is the God who sent his son to the cross. Once God's word comes inside you, it lets you pray with confidence in the last sentence that David spoke here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Because he's a redeemer, his word accomplishes its work. Father, we thank you for the wonderful fact that you're a self-revealing God. You're not a hidden God. You're not a philosopher's God, just an abstraction. We see you in all your wonders. We see you in your word. We see you in Jesus Christ. Father, open the volume of the gospel to someone who's only read book one. Introduce them to the wonderful internal work you want to do of bringing new life as your word is made known. And you will get the praise for Jesus' sake. Amen.